Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar, the ocean is hotter than it's ever been in 170 years. The warmer temperatures increase the moisture in the air and fuel bigger and stronger hurricanes. And in Montana, 16 young people filed a lawsuit claiming the government violated their right to a clean and healthy environment. The final ruling in this first-of-its-kind climate lawsuit is expected within weeks. Plus, for the first time, the USDA has approved lab-grown chicken meat, another version of the most sustainable protein. That and more on our Environmental News Roundtable. Later in the show, once again, novelist Brendan Slocum returns to the world of classical music as the backdrop for his new twisty tale of secrets and lies. Frederick Delaney, who is arguably the world's greatest composer since Beethoven, has a very interesting relationship with a young woman named Josephine Reed, whose uh, actions will resonate throughout history. From the dusty papers in a 19th century steamer trunk to the gleaming offices of a powerful international foundation, the thriller Symphony of Secrets is a page turner. But first, joining me, Dr. Gaurav Basu, Physician and Director of Education and Policy at the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Hi, Gaurav. Hi, Callie. Pleasure to be with you today. I'm glad to have you. Beth Daly, Editor and General Manager of The Conversation U.S. Welcome, Beth. Thanks for having me back. And Sam Payne, Digital Development Manager and Communication Specialist of Better Future Project, a Massachusetts-based grassroots climate action organization. Thanks for joining us, Sam. Thanks for having me, Callie. Well, let's just jump right into the ocean warming. I'm so I'm a little bit tempted to sort of put together the the wildfires and what that means. And I'm going to get to that in a second because I think it you know it connects to. Um, everything that we're talking about. But the warming of the ocean is particularly startling since the scientists are saying it's the hottest it's been in 170 years. And that just is going to upset all kinds of apple carts with regard to both um, creation of more hurricanes, but also many other problems as we go along. So how do you take this information about hot ocean um, sea temperatures and what it means for us. Well, Kali, the the uh, the numbers are striking. There's no question. You look at these graphs and you see the historical trends and you see where we're at today. All of us should be absolutely alarmed. Um, it's important to note that oceans um, absorb, you know, of, of the global warming that we can attribute to human beings. Um, our oceans hold about. 90% of that warming. So our oceans have been protecting us dramatically from uh, greater impacts of climate change, uh, but the oceans can only take so much. Um, so I, I think the thing to um, think about here is that it is complex. We have El Nino at play here, so that is certainly a factor. The climate scientists I um, follow, like Michael Mann, are not saying that this is some unexpected tipping point. Um, that there's a variety of different uh, climate science and atmospheric science 
um, factors at play. So we need to be vigilant about this and be monitoring it. The answer is to urgently get off of fossil fuels, um, but it's concerning and um, our ocean's health is critical to, to human health. Kevin Trenberth from the National Center for Atmospheric Research spoke with the PBS NewsHour about the warming seas. The oceans as a whole, for the top two kilometers of the ocean, are, are the warmest on record. Uh, 2022 is the warmest year on record. 2021 was the warmest year before that. 2020 was the warmest year before that. So global warming is clearly happening. So I wanted to play that, uh, Beth, because it's not going down. Um, and the pattern is that it's just going to continue to get hotter and hotter, and it has a direct connection to what humans are doing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we all, I don't say we all know, but just as Dr. Basu said, all the warming that is going on, so much of it is being absorbed by the ocean. This, This marine heat wave, as it's called, that's happening right now, seems to be an anomaly that might be supercharged because of climate change, but it's likely for a a temporary reason, uh, folks believe. So I just, I did want to state that. Um, My concern about it is we're sort of getting a glimpse into what happens if we have a rapid rise with the marine heat system. And I think a lot of people looking into the North Atlantic around the UK in particular in, in, in our neck of the woods, to see what what the results will be from this, what they anticipate will be nine months to a year of this marine heat wave. Will it be bleaching coral reefs? Will um, our beloved cold water ground fish from cod to flounder continue to act differently and perhaps more um, faster? You know, um, it, it's going to be. I feel like a little bit of a canary in the coal mine. Um, and you know, the hope is it will with the El Nino effect kind of dissipate over time. But I do feel there's a lot of research going on right now um, and a lot of people turning to research for this specific time period because they feel it's a sort of canary in the coal mine. Um, I was struck, uh, Beth, by uh, a a factoid in uh, your piece or the piece in the Conversation U.S. So a decrease in human-produced aerosol emissions in Europe and the United States over the past few years, that's what we want, has succeeded in improving air quality, which may also have reduced the cooling effect that the aerosols have. So it feels like, what, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, because the whole point is to get to less, but yet that may have reduced the cooling effect, which is very interesting. I had never heard that before. As um, uh, Gorup was saying, this is a complex situation. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I, that's that's a fascinating uh, uh, uh it's not even a hypothesis. People have long known that, like from air pollution from ships or air pollution in general, because it would um, it cools it cool sulfur, which is most of the 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 the, the uh, pollutant. It it degrades air quality, so you know it's not good for us. But it also acts to cool the Earth's surface because it reflects sunlight back into space again. So with that gone, you can sort of see this this term um, where the ground is absorbing more sunlight and then and making it <laughs> making it worse. So it, it is highly complex. All right, Sam, weigh in. Yeah, I agree with Beth and uh, Grubb that it's uh, a lot of complicated systems at play here, but uh, this is really disturbing seeing again and again warming outpace predictions, and this should be cause for immediate drastic action. I think the ocean plays a lot more of an interconnected role in the balance of our ecosystem than many people realize. 
uh, phytoplankton, which live just below the, the surface of the ocean, produce over half of all of the oxygen on the planet. So continued rising in ocean temperatures, continued acidification could cause a devastating domino chain of effects uh, that could cause widespread ecosystem collapse. And I don't think we're there yet, but we should be mobilizing and uh, addressing this as if it were the crisis that it is. Hmm. Well, some people who are addressing the crisis at, that it is right now in Montana are a, a group of uh, young people. Um, and when I say young people, I mean just up to the age of 22. Um, they decided to sue their state because there is a part of the state uh, constitution which requires that um, there be consideration paid to the health quality of life um, for everyone in the state. And so they ran with that um, in a lawsuit that has gotten the eyes of the world, really, not just here in the United States. Um, so before you guys weigh in on this suit, which is really fascinated, uh, fascinating, uh, let's hear from Claire Vassis. She's a college junior from Montana, one of the handful of young people suing the state over climate change, and she spoke to the PBS NewsHour. One reason why I love Montana is because in our constitution, it says that every person here has a right to a clean and healthful environment, which isn't in almost all the constitutions in the United States. Right, that is pretty rare. Mm -hmm. It's not a political issue here in Montana. We all are here because of the land, and we have a right to protect that. Well, they've made it through uh, so far, Gorob, and um, now it's up to the judge. It was a, it's a bench decision, not a, journey, uh, a jury one. So the judge alone will make the final decision. It's supposed to come within the next uh, couple of uh, months or in the, within the next few weeks. What do you think about, uh, first of all, I just love the moxie of these young people taking it, taking it back. Um, and then um, the case itself is really going to be precedent setting. Well, Callie, back in the day, I uh, thought about becoming a lawyer because I am mesmerized by this idea of, of making laws um, that create a social contract that allow us to take care of each other, to take care of our health and, and create the rules so that we can be making sure our youth have every reason to believe that they're going to be growing up uh, in the community, in a country in which they can thrive and their health can, can um, flourish. Now, you know, the, the, this case made me realize how uh, few of our laws across the country really create this um, commitment by our constitutions and, and legal paradigms to protect those rights. And you look at the U.S. Constitution and uh, the U.N. Declaration of Rights, it makes you want to ensure that these legal documents um, are protecting people's rights. And it is great to see that in Montana, in fact, that is true, that there is a clause in, um, in their um, state law um, that this, um, this is a protection, this is a, a right for people. Uh, and it made me think that not only Montana, but states across the country should be really thinking about that. What's interesting about that, as we saw in the wildfires, is many of these climate impacts don't stay uh, in one state. Uh, what is uh, what is happening somewhere is felt elsewhere, whether it be wildfires or other kind of air pollution or, or warming. And so um, I, I think I, a, a true testament to these um, youth who are doing this, uh, you know, Juliana versus the United States was another case that came out in recent years. Many of my colleagues, uh, pediatricians, wrote uh, a part of the amicus brief in that case 
And so there's been many, many cases. Um, none have been really successful in penetrating through, but we'll watch and see what happens with this one. Well, Sam, you know, this is a grassroots organization, uh, really effort. I'm saying organization, but they pulled themselves together to make this effort, these young people. And I just want to quote from one of them who testified in court. They can't give their full names because many of them are uh, so young. This is an 18-year-old, Kian T. And he said, I have had many soccer practices canceled for smoke and heat. Playing soccer on turf in the heat is miserable. Imagine your feet are boiling and your cleats burning every single step you take on the field. It burns you out. So they came, uh, each of them, with very specific examples of how um, what was happening in their state was working against them in terms of having a healthy environment and, um, and the climate change, the impact of climate change. Yeah, I think it's really inspiring to see these young people take control, uh, especially when everything around them is made to feel, make them feel disempowered. Um, I think that it's great also that they're talking about their current experiences. I think it's easy for a lot of people to abstract climate change as something that will happen in the future, and it is not happening in the future. It's, not, it's going to be happening to the people who are young now, and it's already happening to them. So I was really happy to see uh, that highlighted, and I'm feeling cautiously optimistic that if not this case, some case will allow uh, us to establish this legal precedent for holding our state governments accountable uh, to their own climate pledges. And the Constitution, Beth, says specifically, the Montana Constitution, the state and each person shall maintain and improve a clean and healthful environment in Montana for present and future generations. The legislature shall provide for the administration and enforcement of this duty. And um, the uh, young people argued they weren't doing that because... um, there was a lot of, as, as has been described, fossil fuel friendly legislation, which was, you know, directly opposed to what they were talking about. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I sometimes get pessimistic when I see so much effort by young people and, and not a lot, a lot of movement on the legal end. Um, so I will say this this Montana case also made me feel hopeful. One, it's part of this very smart effort that started in Oregon, really going after, um, you know, this is the first state legislation, I'm sorry, constitution effort that they challenge, but these public trust doctrines across states that promise a good environment, a clean environment, that is a trend. And the fact to me that it was the most stunning thing is that when they filed it, they got action you know, lawmakers repealed this pro-fossil fuel law and that tried to get that dismissed from part of the lawsuit. So obviously Montana saw themselves in a vulnerable position and they reacted. And I thought that was very powerful. And so I'm very curious to see how the judge rules. And I think it will also embolden, if they are successful, embolden far other, um, many other um, lawsuits just like this across the country. So yeah, so hopefully it's a win for the climate. I, yes, I agree with you. I think it, has, it gives a lot of energy to to the young people themselves across the world. I mean, every, all of us have seen Greta Thunberg, you know, tossed into jail or tossed around or protesting. And to your point, um, Beth, it's like, OK, we hear you and you're right. Um, but, you know, after you have this demonstration, we can't see any movement on these very specific areas. And here, 
they found some very specific areas to move. And by the way, however the judge rules will have built, begun to build on something. So this is not going away. This is just an opening, however the judge rules, I, I think, is how I'm interpreting it. Yeah, definitely. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Dr. Gura Basu, Director of Education and Policy at Harvard Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment. Beth Daly, Editor and General Manager of The Conversation U.S. And Sam Payne, Communication Specialist for The Better Future Project. We're discussing the latest environmental news. Once again, this is the question I keep asking you all. <laughs> When something like this happens and we hear about the warming ocean and the kids are stepping up, all of this combined, does that move people in a way that perhaps we haven't seen movement in a while? Because make no mistake, there's a very strong um, anti-environmental, anti-this-does-not-exist kind of uh, movement going on both here and around the world. Anyway, so when those wildfires, those Canadian wildfires happened and they ended up in Boston and they ended up in New York... I think it was mind-blowing and eye-opening. Here's the Daily Mail that spoke to some New Yorkers when the smoke hit there. I feel like everybody else has masks on and I should probably go home and get one. A lot of the kids didn't go to school today. I wouldn't blame the school because this is horrible. They still make us come to work. Look at the weather. Dr. Basu, in your in your full doctor mode, you've been speaking. Um, you're a part of the group of doctors who have, uh, according to this article from Heat Map, quietly teaching Americans about climate change. Um, and this is an opportunity, sadly, to point to pe- point to a situation and say, this is real, and how do you feel about it? Because it's impacting you. So how, how are you seeing, are you seeing any kind of change in regular folk, as I, as I would describe them? Um, and, it, and will you think it'll, it'll uh, get better because people are starting to feel it themselves? Yeah, Callie. I mean, you know, a couple of points to start off is, you know, I think a lot of the foundation of my work and kind of connecting impacts of climate change, environmental justice on health is to make it very real and very human. Um, as much as I personally and we all should be caring about what's happening uh, to ecology around the world, I think if we can put a human face in front of people and explain how these things, you know, a wildfire is going to put a child in um, the emergency room with an asthma exacerbation instead of allowing them to be at school. That's a potent way to to make it real to people and to get people to take action. So I think health is really at the forefront of this. And, you know, I think people did have uh, a wake up moment across the the East Coast uh, during those extraordinary days of wildfire, certainly you know, you saw the scenes in New York and DC and Philadelphia. Now, I think what this study, I mean, first of all, the studies have shown that a vast majority of the US society is worried about climate change and understands it. So I think sometimes we give too much power to those folks who are very dismissive about science or anti-science. That's actually a very small minority of folks. Most people are quite worried about this. But absolutely, I'll tell you among my students and, and my patients, uh, the conversations about climate change and how it matters um, have increased tremendously in the coming years. Now, I think the studies, what they have shown is that, you know, an event like experiencing a, a dramatic wildfire can change how many people are worried about climate change or understand that climate change is uh, human driven uh, anthropogenic emissions. But the question is action. 
So we can have attitude change or concern increase, but what we need is action. And so the question is for all of us, what are we going to do with this worry? What are we going to do with what we see? And how are we going to find our voice and our space to, to move something forward? And that's that's what we're all here to do together, is to, to make sure that people can find their way of bringing solutions to the table. Um, Beth? There's um, such a, I have to say a funny story. When when the wildfires happened in the Northeast uh, and, and all the smoke came down, our colleagues who live my brother who live on the West Coast said, now you know what it's like all the time. And I thought that was pretty profound because mm -hmm. it, it it doesn't happen in the Northeast very often. And it felt like Armageddon. I was in New York um, that day, uh, actually the day after. Um, and we actually were holding a climate conference on that Friday and had a like a, a, a reception the night before at a, at a big foundation in New York re regarding climate behavior actually and we had to cancel the reception because of climate change it was sort of ironic and sad um but we did go forward the next day but i, I do think people's people have tangible um proof that their the environment is affecting their health is is really really profound now is it is it super important that they acknowledge that it's climate change i don't know i just think if people know something different because some people you may not convince but Dr. Basu is totally right. Most people, if you look at the polling numbers, really understand what climate change is and are very nervous about it. But making that direct, tangible connection to your health and to the skies of that eerie color, um, I think it, it will do more than any, I don't know, you know, newspaper article will do. I would would think so, but it's fascinating to me because uh, the Washington Post was uh, quoting a poll taken in December just looking at, you know, where Americans are, uh, about half, according to this poll, think U.S. residents believe that they are being harmed by global warming right now. But 47 percent say they have personally experienced its effects, which would lead one to believe that being a part of this a Canadian wildfire smoke would just um, concretize. Uh, and a full 50 percent, according to this poll, believe that uh, people in their communities will be harmed by global war warming. And what I think is also interesting in this same survey is that fewer than half think their friends and family take action about it or that their friends and family expect them to take action. So it's kind of a, Sam, yeah, it's happening. Yes, we've just now really experienced uh, some horrible part of it. But the other part of it that's so important that you keep emphasizing from Better Future is you got to take some action. And there's a lot of squishiness around that, according to this poll. Yeah, absolutely, Callie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I found it really striking that, you know, over 70% of Americans believe that climate change is a serious problem that needs to be addressed, but then only half of them think that their community is going to be affected. And there seems to me to be a rather big disconnect there, that there's at least 20-something percent of Americans who think climate change is a serious deal that won't affect them. And I think as they continue to see events like... Uh, the sky turning orange happen right before their eyes, it's going to become a lot more clear to people uh, that it's happening now and that it's affecting them and their loved ones. And uh, I really am hoping that that will spur more people to action. I think we've seen the number of people who are engaged in climate action uh, rise steadily over the last decade. And I think that that's only going to accelerate. Well, let's move on to this lab-grown chicken meat. 
I'm going to let you listen to a reporter from CNET that tried it out. This is a chicken nugget This in San Francisco. So here's the reporter's take on it. All right, moment of truth. Let's eat this. Mmm. It tastes like a chicken nugget. <laughs> That's great. The consistency is good. Mm-hmm. It has the same kind of like slightly mushy texture when you bite into it. The breading is great. Yeah, absolutely tastes like a chicken nugget. Because it is a chicken nugget, right? It it's chicken real nugget. chicken. It's, it's actually chicken. chicken. It's cultured chicken. And it tastes like the real deal. So the point of that is that the U.S. Department of Agriculture has now said two different kinds of lab-grown chicken are okay. They've approved it. Um, uh, and um, this is a very important move for a couple of reasons. I know a lot of people will be thinking it's about the taste because she emphasized that as eating. And sure it is about the taste if people are going to eat it and, um, and, and make it uh, something that is actually an alternative for folks or even um, a main dish. But I'm interested in the, in the fact that chicken in general uh, is a more sustainable, or some say the most sustainable protein, and that this um, will directly reduce some greenhouse gases of the kind that, that generally are emitted by the cows and, um, and the rest. So should that be the emphasis on this? Um, and is this a breakthrough in that way? Yeah, Callie, you know, it's funny. I, I, I would say that of um, the, the areas that we need to work urgently to decrease emissions, I sometimes worry most about how we're not talking enough about the food, agriculture, land-based emissions enough. We talk a lot about solar panels. We talk about, you know, transportation uh, innovations that will allow us to decrease emissions. Food is hard because um, asking people to change their behaviors um, to eat more vegetables, less red meat um, is a challenge. As a primary care doctor, I can tell you that for sure. Um, I, I, I'll say a few things here. First is I do think that we all should consider how to have a more plant-based uh, uh, diet. Um, I also think that we need all the tools we can have to decrease these emissions because food, agricultural, land use related emissions are 24% of global emissions, second only to electric, electricity production. So whether it's this one with the uh, with chicken or um, you know the impossible um, kind of um, you know uh, beef based um, you know, whether it's cultured meat or or these other plant based uh, meat uh, uh, offerings, we we're going to need to just fundamentally transform the way we eat because not only for our personal health, uh, but also because uh, we are changing the Earth's composition uh, by the way we're using land and with. Uh, you know, global populations continue to increase. Um, far too often, I just saw a study saying that, you know, in uh, 2022, uh, the pace of uh, deforestation increased by 10%. So we're going the wrong direction here and cutting down forestry, replacing it with runaway agriculture to feed this desire for red meat. And we're going to need some breakthroughs, not only on the behavioral side, but also in the food option. So uh, I'm rooting for this and hoping it's a part of, um, part of the solution. 
If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Dr. Gaurav Basu, Director of Education and Policy at Harvard's Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment, Beth Daly, Editor and General Manager of The Conversation U.S., and Sam Payne, Communication Specialist for The Better Future Project. We're talking about the vast implications of climate change. Gaurav, you just taught me something. I know I'm not alone. I had no idea that the food part of this equation was as important as you've just um, articulated. I thought this was a nice aside, but I did not know. Um, Wow, that's pretty impressive. I did not know that. It's really important. Wow. Okay. So Beth, weigh in. Yeah. So I'm super excited about this. I mean, the first lab-grown burger cost three hundred and thirty thousand dollars to create in two thousand thirteen, and now it's under ten dollars. So it, it's it's going to get less expensive, and in certain conditions, it it does obviously not obviously in in many conditions it produces relatively less greenhouse gas than you know conventional livestock production. So I think that's exactly critical because what you if that with that you can sort sort of say okay then we can stop the land clearing. Um, I don't know enough about poultry. Um, you know, I've always focused on uh, red meat as sort of the biggest bang for your buck lab culture, um, lab cultured products. But yeah, I'm, I'm rooting for this too. I, 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 I often, we had this long talk in, among the editors yesterday about this subject. And I think the audience are, is not, you know, vegetarians, obviously it's people who would eat meat otherwise. And I, I, it's interesting to see if they're going to go for this. I just, I'm very curious. Um, I hope they do, but I know people get squeamish about some things. So we'll see. I don't know. I think that's changed, Sam, with, uh, you know, uh, some of the, for lack of a better expression, fake meat products, uh, because again, they taste good. Um, And it also, there's a huge movement toward plant-based foods, period. Um, It may not seem huge, but it has happened. And I will note, I you know, I know there's always more interest in beef, or it seems like that's the narrative for Americans. We are beef, beef, beef. Um, and I know that's true. But guess what? The most requested recipes on the Food Network forever and a day, and including this day, chicken. So this could make a serious impact. And now that I put that together with what Gorob said in terms of how impactful this is, wow, this could be a huge huge movement in this in that direction. But Sam, you weigh in. Yeah, I agree. You know, as a former vegetarian who feels a little bit guilty every time I cut into a steak, I'm very excited by this. I would really love to see uh, lab cultured meat overtake real meat, but I think we're also a very long way off. I think it's likely not that much more, if at all more energy efficient. Uh, with all of the R&D that goes into it right now, but I still think that we should be investing in this because it's a good long-term solution. Like Dr. Basu said, uh, our livestock industry is one of the most polluting industries on the planet, more so than all transportation sectors put together. Uh, And, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge that there is already vegetarian protein options out there. So the taste is actually going to be very important here because as you said, uh, or as I think Beth said, Um, like this is for meat eaters. We need to get meat eaters to switch over to cultured meat. Vegetarians are already having a significantly lower carbon footprint. Uh, So I think if they can replicate the way that uh, a steak breaks apart in your mouth, I think that this is a multi-billion dollar idea and I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, me too. 
um, because there is a lot of movement on that front. In fact, some meat eaters will tell you they can't tell the difference now between that impossible burger and, and real beef. I know that doesn't make the beef farmers happy, but that is a fact. Um, Beth, you brought to our attention that uh, the wind farm industry is um, um, not in trouble, but um, slowed considerably. This was very exciting. We're going in this direction. We're going to have wind farm. And yet um, the movement on this has been slowed because of very pedestrian but real things, inflation and supply chain. Wow. Beth. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 I mean, just for anyone who supports renewable energy, which most people do, this seemed like a, an amazing promise, you know, um, it's great vineyard wind is going forward. We have, you know, the, the blades showing up to start building the turbines, but the other um, projects that were going to be off, off, um, offside of Massachusetts in, in the water are really struggling. It's, you know, supply chain challenges that are affecting a kind of worldwide, you know, manufacturing. Um, and they haven't quite figured it out yet. Um, and it's interesting to me because it has worked in other um, markets, offshore wind farms in, in, a, in a large scale. So why we're not being able to, to figure it out, um, it may be just a timing issue right now. But but I will say having having as a climate reporter way back when in the Boston Globe, when the Cape Wind project first came about, it struggled through the same problems and ultimately died, you know? Um, so I'm really hoping financing can step in. Maybe there's um, some some government funds to, to help out with this. Um, or, you know, I, I think there's a way forward, but it's going to require investment um, from not just uh, the private, uh, you know, private investors. Uh, Sam, are you concerned that this could end up going the way of uh, those other projects that Beth mentioned from years ago? Or, or this is just a temporary kind of glitch. Yeah, you know, I'm concerned. I could see it being a temporary hitch on the step, but you know, we have ambitious targets to reduce emissions by 50% by 2030. And we only have six years and some change left. So uh, yeah, I, I very much agree with Beth. I think we need to see uh, government take a lot more control of this. Uh, hopefully federal money can help make these investments now. And, you know, I think if we do that, I think private money will end up following suit. But I think uh, it's important now more than ever to make these large public investments in shifting our energy economy to renewables. And, you know, Massachusetts is a great place to do that. Gorup, weigh in. I'll just say, you know, listen, in this um, time of um, ambitious implementation of climate solutions, Things are going to keep getting stuck, I think, you know, and it's uh, supply chains and inflation here. It could be housing costs. You know, the, the point of government now and the point of all of us trying to implement these solutions is that you got to unstick it. And there's going to be curveballs. There's going to be unexpected things that happen. You know, the hydropower from Quebec is a good example, right? That got stuck and then ultimately got unstuck so that that is now uh, on track again. Um, offshore wind seems critical for Massachusetts to fulfill its pledges. Uh, and there's some wobbliness here for sure, even though some projects are going well. So, you know, um, to Beth and Sam's point, you know, uh, we have this green bank now, right, for green housing. Should there be a bank that's supporting some of this private investment so that we unstick this and make it uh, catapult forward? Because we, we can't have the delays now. We, we've got to get things built uh, ASAP. Well, we're going to have to leave it there today, and I want to thank all of you for joining me. 
Thank you. It was great. Great to be here. Great to be here. Thank you all. Dr. Gorup Basu is a physician and director of education and policy at the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Beth Daly is the editor and general manager of The Conversation U.S., and Sam Payne is digital development manager and communication specialist of Better Future Project, a Massachusetts-based grassroots climate action organization. Coming up, a revered and respected American composer, a scholar whose life's work is linked to that composer, and a secret scandal that could destroy both their legacies. That's the thrilling plot of Brendan Slocum's new novel, Symphony of Secrets. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley.